want to talk about did Jesus come to bring a political kingdom or a brotherhood society? And I suppose the answer is simple and everybody could instantly trot out some explanation to that question. But if you look at the church today, Christians are animated by presidential elections. They are animated by civic issues or challenges facing them on a daily basis. They're going to read books. They're going to attend campaigns. They're going to contribute monetarily to political solutions. And yet when it comes to the church, the definition of that term has been so shrunk down, has been so reduced that by comparison, it attracts much less intensity. And yet, Jesus came and launched a revolution with this concept. <laughs> and we want to make sure that we are understanding that properly so that we can have the same results today. I want to look at a couple scriptures from the Gospels that point to the fact that Jesus' audience, even his disciples, were expecting a political Davidic dynasty, not what he came to bring. In John 6, verse 15, Jesus is teaching the multitudes in the wilderness. And this idea of going out into the wilderness and a mass gathering assembling was not uncommon in his day. In fact, it was the way that the zealots would bring together their mass gatherings. They would send out word that we're going to be in a certain place because there was so much scrutiny, so much political scrutiny from the Romans and their client state through Herod that they would often meet in remote places and have these mass gatherings where they would discuss various options for the future. So when Jesus goes out into the wilderness and a mass gathering assembles, we're told that they were planning to forcibly make him king. The Bible doesn't elaborate. John just says they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king. And it's revealing of the quality of attendees at that conference. They were fairly determined and fairly clear in their thinking about what was needed and what could solve that need. I don't even know what a forcible coronation looks like, <laughs> but they apparently had that intention. Somebody had a crown up their robe or something. <laughs> We're going to get this on his head if our life depends on it. Mark 10 tells us that James and John came to Jesus, as did their mother, and requested, grant that we may sit, one on your right and the other on your left. One of the more troubling scriptures that reveals these political expectations is Luke 7, also recorded in Matthew 11, but Luke 7:20, the cousin of Jesus, John the Baptist, has preached a message of repentance. Israel has had their hearts torn up and has come to a turning point. And he has baptized Jesus in the Jordan to fulfill righteousness. And then he's captured by Herod and thrown in prison. And this man who was greatest among all born of women behind bars, sends his disciples and says, go ask Yeshua, are you the one or do we look for another? Are you the coming one or should we be looking for someone else? And this question is laden with significance because John doesn't feel that his imprisonment and approaching death is compatible with the expectations he had for Messiah, for Yeshua. 
And so his trust, his confidence that Jesus is the Messiah is actually waning. He's wondering, did I have it right? When I looked up and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop and untie. Did I have it right? Because nothing is going the way we expected. So he asks, are you the coming one or do we seek for another? This is powerful because it shows expectations in conflict with fulfillment. And I think that if Christians today could peer into God's plan and purpose and wisdom for this time, they might be as befuddled and confused as John the Baptist. They would say, is this God's will? Should this really be happening? Or should we be looking for something else? Of course, Jesus answers and says, go tell John what you see and hear. And he quotes from Isaiah 35. John knows his Bible. The, 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 the blind see, the lame walk. The poor have the gospel preached to them. The dumb speak and bless it. And he adds this on it. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And this word offended, you could, it could be rendered, blessed is he who does not feel that I have let him down, that I have disappointed him. Returning to John 6, when they tried to forcibly make him king, Jesus answered these political expectations by speaking in spiritual terms that could not be understood naturally. He said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. He chose language that has no natural interpretation. As if to crowbar their thinking out of the framework of the flesh and get them groping after what could God be meaning in the spirit. In this same chapter of John 6, he, he causes the whole crowd to disperse with his hard sayings. And after they leave, he turns to the apostles and he says, will you go also? He wasn't overly concerned by his messaging and the effect it was having on his audience. Peter says, where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And when he had offended the crowd, he says to them, does this offend you? Then what are you going to do when you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before. And you ask yourself, well, what's the corollary here? Why would somebody be offended to see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? But if you were looking at the Son of Man, if you were looking at Jesus as the political solution for an admittedly dire situation in Judea under Roman rule, and you were expecting it's at any moment that he's going to come in on his white horse, then when he starts to ascend into heaven, this consummation of the ages, this epic moment of complete union between God and man could actually disappoint you and offend you. And I think today that some of the greatest moves that God would make on the earth have the likelihood of offending and disappointing us if we don't have the right heart and expectation concerning what he's really come to do. And so he says, does this offend you? Then what are you going to do when you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? If we jump over to Acts 1, 5, and 6, you remember just before Jesus ascended, he's standing there with the twelve on the Mount of Olives, and just moments before the Son of Man ascends, what is the last question that man speaks to God before he goes into heaven? The question is, is it at this time that you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He's already been crucified. They've already pulled out their swords and been rebuked. He's already risen from the dead after they denied him. He's already met with them and broken bread and their eyes have been opened. He's walked with them along the road to Emmaus. And now 
He's ascending. And just before he ascends, they say, is it at this time that you will restore the kingdom? Because all of their framework for Christ was this expectation that we know what we need and we're hoping you're going to get on with the process sooner rather than later. And what does he say? He points them toward Pentecost. He says, It is not for you to know times and seasons with which the Father has fixed in his own authority, but wait in the city of Jerusalem, and after that the Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and the uttermost ends of the earth. And this is reminiscent of language of a kingdom expanding from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost ends of the earth. And so we don't even know what they were expecting when they went to Jerusalem. We know that when he ascended, they were kind of paralyzed for a while gazing into heaven and some angels suddenly appeared and said, why are you gazing up into heaven? If it hadn't been angels, I would have said, why wouldn't I be gazing up into heaven? Something phenomenal just happened. But for the purpose and timetable of God, the angel is confused. Why wouldn't you be putting your face toward Jerusalem? Why wouldn't you be looking toward the coming of this kingdom that you've anticipated for three and a half years? Go and wait in the city. This Jesus whom you saw go will return in like manner. And so they did go. You know, I, I read in Encyclopedia Britannica, this smart aleck is pontificating about Christ. And it says, Jesus was a, an end times preacher who announced the kingdom of God. But when it didn't come, Paul rationalized Jesus' words to mean that it was metaphysical instead of practical. And so I just want to put that claim to scrutiny with Scripture. Was Jesus a man who made a promise that didn't come true? And did Paul then rationalize after the fact what Jesus had said? Let's look at Luke 17, 20, verse 21. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, Jesus answered and said to them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. Why will this not be? For, behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. So in this scripture, he's saying, whatever this thing is that we call the kingdom of God, you won't be able to say, look, here it is, or there it is. And the reason why is because it's an internalized reality. It's in your midst. It's inside of you. In John 18, 36, when interrogated by Pontius Pilate, he answered, my kingdom is not of this world. He did not say my kingdom is not in this world. We've been told elsewhere that we should be in the world but not of the world. And here he says my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. It's a powerful statement. He's basically saying, we're at war. And the proof that my kingdom is not of this world is, we'd be fighting you if it were. So implacably opposed to each other are we. But good for you, Pilate. My kingdom is from another realm. In Luke 19.11, it says, The crowd was listening to everything Jesus said. And because he was nearing Jerusalem... He told them a story to correct the impression that the kingdom of God would appear immediately. And what is the story he told? The parable of the talents that describes the king going on a long journey and coming back. But that the kingdom advances through the faith internalized in the hearts of his good stewards. 
Do you follow me so far? You've heard me teach about Nicodemus, so I'm just going to paraphrase here. When Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, you say, why did he come at night? Well, some would say, well, because he's embarrassed. He doesn't want anybody to know that he's coming to Jesus. But I don't think that's why. Because he introduces the conversation. He starts the conversation by saying, we know that you are from God. And what was the crowd that Nicodemus represented? It was the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin specifically. Would you agree? So when he starts the conversation, he says, we know that you are from God. We can infer by that that he does not speak only for himself, but some kind of conversation was going on in the Sanhedrin, and he is likely a delegate, a representative of that body. And perhaps they are seeing the miracles, hearing the teaching, and beginning to wonder, is this our man? And so he speaks in the plural pronouns, we know that you have been sent by God for no one can do the works you do unless God is with him. So if he's speaking on behalf of the Sanhedrin, I don't think he's afraid or embarrassed to be seen talking to Jesus. I think he's coming at night because he doesn't want to be seen by others. Perhaps the Romans or Herod. Do you follow? I believe this has political overtures. And I think that is proven by Jesus' response. Nicodemus says, we know that you have been sent by God for no one could do the things you do unless God is with him. The rational response to such a compliment would have been, thank you. I haven't heard much of that from your crowd. <laughs> but that's not how Jesus responded. How did he respond? He immediately jumps the topic and starts talking about the kingdom that Nicodemus can't see. He perceived that that was his interest. That was why he came to have the conversation. He was seeking the kingdom. And the, com the compliment, we know that you have been sent by God, is a suggestion. You might be our man. And he says, the kingdom you're looking for, you won't be able to see it unless you're changed. And you won't be able to enter it unless you're transformed. And he describes this change in words never before used. He says, you've got to be born again. That sounds like such a promise to us in 21st century Christianity. But that was a terrible disappointment to a man who was old. You don't tell somebody who's built their whole life gaining wisdom, guess what? You get to start over. <laughs> that's not what he wanted to hear. But that's what he needed to hear. Because all the accumulation of his knowledge and wisdom was not only insufficient, it was what prevented him from seeing and entering the kingdom of God. And then he begins to kind of be unkind to him, I suppose. He tells him, are you Israel's teacher and you don't know these things? And you ask yourself, why? Would Israel's teacher, why should Israel's teacher, why should he have known these things? What would have equipped Nicodemus to know these things? This concept of rebirth is tied to the concept of entering as a child. In Matthew 19, 14, he says, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. In Matthew 5, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 5, he also says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In 18, he says, Unless you change and become like a kid, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. My paraphrase, but that's what he's saying. In Mark 10, 15, he says, Truly I tell you, anyone who's de who does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Why is it necessary to lose all the knowledge, all the perspective, all the way of relating, all the expectations? Why is it necessary to undo all of that and start like a child? He says exactly verbatim the same thing in Luke 18, 17. Why should Israel's king know these things? Just give me a second 
while I wonder if the wrong king played havoc with my notes. Ah, I played havoc with my notes. Why should Israel's teacher have known these things, that the kingdom was spiritual? Because Jeremiah had said, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, not like the one I made of old. This time I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and they will all know me. It was going to be a relationship. It wasn't going to be a political kingdom. Joel had said, It will come about after those days, saith the Lord, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Israel's teachers should have known that scripture. Isaiah had said, I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your children and my blessing on your descendants. Ezekiel had said, I will put my spirit inside you and you will come to life. Zechariah had said, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the weeping over a firstborn. Ezekiel had also said, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. So when he rebukes him and said, are you Israel's king? Are you Israel's teacher and you do not know these things? He thought Nicodemus should have had a different expectation of Mashiach. He thought he should have known that he was coming to do something in the heart of man that would transform the bondage inside and not merely the chains without. So, Jesus came with a view of only two primary kingdoms. Not Rome and Herod and China and the United States. He came with a view of really only two primary kingdoms. And these kingdoms were spiritual. And all political kingdoms were mere vassal expressions of the greater king that they served. So of the devil it was said, all the kingdoms of this world lie under the control of the evil one. And when he tempted Christ, he said, all these belong to me, and I give them to whomever I wish. And Jesus called him the ruler of this world. And so he represents the ultimate tyrant and his is the ultimate kingdom over all others. Jesus did not come to free them from Rome. That was a vassal kingdom. He came to free them from the power that Satan used to hold them in bondage. And what was that power? In Hebrews 2.14 we're told Jesus himself partook of flesh and blood so that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and who all their lifetime held them in bondage through the fear of death. So there's the devil's bondage tool. There's his power, the threat of death. And the fear of death is how he controls us, how he holds us in bondage. The chain that he was going to break was an invisible chain. Manacles, shackles around the human heart. That's what he was going to pop free. He wasn't going to come and break the physical chains. The secondary expressions of Satan's tyranny. So listen to how he portrays his kingdom. In Luke 10, 19, he says, Behold, I give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Now we have to harmonize this with other scriptures. When he says nothing will injure you, he's not saying that you're not going to have tribulation. He's already told us we will have tribulation. Amen? He's not saying that we're not going to be persecuted. He's already said, blessed are you who are persecuted and mistreated. He's already told us that they're going to put us in chains and they're going to put us to death. Some of you they will put to death, he says. 
So when he says nothing will injure you, he's not talking about our body. He's already said in Matthew 10, do not fear him who can hurt the body, and after that, do no more. Let me show you who you should fear. He's trying to say, don't let self-preservation make you a slave of the designs of the devil. Come to a place of freedom where, where your faith and your soul and your commitment to God will not be injured. And he gives us authority over all the power of the enemy. Amen. Does that mean that we are never going to suffer? No, that's not what that means. We need to understand what it does mean. In Romans 8, it says, You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by which we cry out, Abba, Father. In 1 John, he says, We have come to know and believe the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God. And God remains in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in the world. He goes on and he tells us how we overcome the power by which the devil subjugates us. He says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. And John has already told us what our definition of love is. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So ought we to lay down our lives for one another. In Colossians, Paul said, Christ has delivered us from the power of darkness. So what is the power that he has given us authority to tread on? It's darkness. It's fear. It's all the vices and temptations and true power of the enemy. So he says, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his Love. That king controls by fear. Love casts out all fear. He's taken us from the power of darkness and put us in the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus promised that the kingdom of God would come in power before the disciples died. Now you have the wrong expectation of what the kingdom of God is. You're not going to understand that. But he says in Mark 9, 1, Truly, truly, I say to you, there are some who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. That's a promise. You're not going to die until the kingdom comes with power. Sure, they had the wrong expectation, but he wanted them to know that real power was going to come in their lives. And the tyranny that they suffered under was going to be broken at a more fundamental level than they could have anticipated. He says the same thing in Matthew 16, 28, and the same thing in Luke 9, 27. What was the seminal power event that happened post-ascension? What was the seminal power event that happened for his disciples? He told them in Luke 24, 49, wait in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. And then he said in Acts, you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. And he said it in response to the question, when will you restore the kingdom? So the kingdom... It amounts to the Lord conquering what? The coming of his kingdom is a conquering concept. Would you agree with that? What does he conquer? What does he conquer? Does he conquer Rome? No, he did not. What does he conquer? He conquers the tyranny by which Rome rules. He conquers the fear of death. He conquers the power of sin. 
He conquers all the power and authority of the evil one. He gives us authority over that. Pentecost marks the seminal power event post-ascension. The kingdom is real where spiritual power is at work. I'm going to repeat that. The kingdom is only real where spiritual power is at work. Let's look at this. He says in Luke 12, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In Luke 10, he says this, Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. But when you enter a town and are not welcome, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet, we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near to you. When he sends out the 70, he gives them power and authority. We've referenced this several times, right? And what is the power and authority over all the power of the evil one? Now we can classify that. We can spend a whole seminar classifying the power of the evil one. But let's distill it down. It's the power of temptation. We see that in Satan's interaction with Christ. It's the power of the threat of death which brings fear. That's his primary power in the world. Would you agree? Let's just stay focused on that. When he says, go and work in the spirit, cast out demons, heal the sick, proclaim the gospel. He says, if they reject you, leave their town, but tell them something. Tell them the kingdom of God came near you. As if if they had submitted to this activity of the spirit through the disciples, they would have actually tasted the kingdom of God. Let's keep going. Satan reigns spiritually just as Christ designs to reign. Satan's tyranny is spiritual. We're going to get into that, but you already know the scriptures. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, right? But against principalities and powers. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God for tearing down strongholds and every argument and high thing that exalts itself above the knowledge of God. In Matthew 12, Jesus is casting out demons and the Pharisees come and they say, he does that by the power of Beelzebub. Do you remember this? And so he gives them a parable and he says, he says, a house divided against itself can't stand. The way I interpret that is, it's not in the devil's interest to cast himself out. <laughs> That's the New Living Translation or something along those lines. It's not in his interest to cast himself out. He's not going to last. He's not going to stand if he behaves like that. And then he says, but who do your sons cast, him, cast the demons out by? And then he goes on, and in, in verse 28, he says, let's just go to that. Somebody open that for us here. Let's just look at Matthew 12, 28 through 30. Jesus speaking. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is, is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Okay, so he uses this word gather after the plunder parable for good reason. But he starts by saying, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
This is a kingdom definition text. I don't know if you're going to find another that is so explicit. When you pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. What you're praying is our Father who art in heaven. Would you please cast out the power of evil in the world? Because that is the kingdom of God. He said, if I cast out demons, if I get rid of the internal bondage inside of people's lives, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And then he says, you cannot plunder a strong man's house until you bind the strong man. Now we are the house. People who are bound by the devil, God wants to take them as plunder. He wants to lead them in triumphal procession in Christ Jesus. But he's got to bind the power of evil, the power of the devil. The devil is the strong man. And so supernatural power to bind him is going to come at work, come, come to bear, and then the occupants of his house are freed to be led in triumphal procession in Christ. When Jesus sent out the 70, it is a precursor of Pentecost. It's a precursor of the church. It's like a snapshot into what the church is going to look like operating in the power of the Spirit. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And what did Jesus reply when these 70 went out in faith and operated in the power of God to heal the sick, to cast out demons, and to preach the gospel? They came back and said it worked. And how did Jesus respond when they said it worked? He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. When the church begins to engage in the binding of Satan's power and the release of truth and love and the power of the Spirit, the, the kingdom of the evil one comes down so fast it looks like grease lightning. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He goes on, I saw Satan, he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions. And I, I see this spiritually as the snake in the garden and the scorpions of lies that would poison and hurt people. And to overcome all the power of the enemy, nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. We never see this anywhere else in the scripture, that Jesus is overjoyed. Our man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. One from whom men hide their faces. There is one moment in all the Gospels when he is overcome by joy. He rejoices greatly when he sees that the power of the devil can come down as people begin to operate in the faith and power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to these little children. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. I think God wants to disclose to us that the power of his kingdom is as real as the power of love in the church, the power of truth in the church, the power of grace in the church, to operate and cast out the power of hate, the power of falsehood, the power of unbelief, the power of sin, the power of fear, the power of the evil one. In 1 John 3, he says, The one who practices sin is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the start. 
This is why the Son of God was revealed to destroy the works of the devil. This is why he was revealed to destroy the works of the devil. In John 12, Jesus said, Judgment is upon the world, but now the prince of this world is cast out. Doesn't mean he's not at work in the world. We know he is. Paul said he was the God of this world still. But it means that there's a place where he's being cast out. And that's the hearts and lives that are surrendered to the dominion of God. That's the kingdom of God. And there he's being cast out. In Acts 26, 18, he says, I am sending you to them to open their eyes. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified. Sometimes the power of God is to open your eyes and see how the devil holds us bondage through systems and dynamics and myths and unbelief that we don't even know is there. But he can open our eyes and he no longer has power in the darkness. The light's gone on and we see it for what it really is. In 1 Corinthians 4.20, Paul said, The kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. Now that doesn't align with a cessationist doctrine. But a cessationist doctrine doesn't align with scripture, so let it go by the wayside. The kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. That's the kingdom that we're seeking. In 2 Corinthians 6, he says that we are strengthened by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right and the left hand. And Ephesians 6 tells us to put on the armor, but it's not fleshly weapons. And 2 Corinthians 10 tells us to fight the fight, but it's not natural principalities. Peter was powerless before Pentecost. He trembled before a servant girl, cursed and denied the Lord. But after Pentecost, he had power. And he lived in dominion over the impulses of the flesh. In short, over the power of the evil one. And what was born after Pentecost? We know at Pentecost, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they had power. Would you agree with that? But what resulted after Pentecost? What did Pentecost produce? They were all continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place to the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and sharing with each other as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. What do we see? We see unity. We see harmony. We see gladness in fellowship. We see a desire to be with one another. In short, the power of the enemy, which is competition and rivalry, has been, renewed, has been removed by Pentecost power event. And so now, the possibility of a brotherhood society has been born. You see this beautiful depiction here of continuing in brotherly love and fellowship. This wouldn't have been possible for the Peter who cursed and denied the Lord. This would not have been possible. Because the power of the enemy still had that Peter. What was the power that made Peter deny the Lord? The fear of death. He's standing right next to Caiaphas' house, under which is a prison where they're going to beat the Lord, tying him spread eagle 
And, and, and the next morning, they're going to crucify him. And he can't, he can't do that. He's courageous when he can rely on the arm of the flesh. And if he could have proven his faithfulness with the weapons that are carnal and not mighty through God, he would have stuck it out to the bloody end right there in Gethsemane. But he doesn't have that power over fear until Pentecost. At Pentecost, something is happening that causes a multitude to gather and to mock. Oh, these people are drunk. And Peter must have been standing at the back. This is something he kind of liked to do, it seems. But then it says, but taking his stand with the rest, Peter said. He came out of the shadows. He came away from the fear where he used to warm his hands. And he stood there and said, these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last day, saith God, I will pour out my spirit. And this same Peter would go with John boldly into the temple and meet a man there who asked for money. And he would say, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. He had received the power the power of God's Spirit, the power in His name, and that power over fear, that power over pride, over envy, over all the works of the devil made fellowship and unity possible. Jesus said, as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you. And Paul says, if by the transgression of one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Paul would say, you are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish you had become kings so that we might reign with you. What were they reigning over at Corinth? Were they reigning over that Greek city? No. They were reigning over the flesh. They were reigning over sin. They were reigning over envy and fear. They were reigning over all the power and authority of the evil one. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seal. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and, and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests who are God, and they will reign upon the earth. Can you think of any examples of, of what the apostles looked like after Pentecost? I've just given you the one of Peter. Can you think of any others where they demonstrated that they were no longer bound by the fear of death? How many of you know that Stephen had a burden for the people of God as he spoke a word that would make them pick up stones to stone him. He was laying his life down willingly by speaking a truth that would provoke anger and wrath and murder. This is what Jesus had done, isn't it? But even in a willingness to speak that way, he was showing that he had overcome the self-preservation, the fear of death by which the devil holds us in bondage all our lifetime. So he tells them the truth as it really is, and they start hurling stones at him. And what is he doing? Oh, God, this isn't what it was supposed to be. No. He's saying, Father, do not hold this sin against them. Thank you, Jesus. And it looks like a defeat. But a man who held the cloak, the cloaks of those who stoned him, would soon come face to face with the same God and find the same power and walk in the same fearlessness. Consider Paul. You're going to Jerusalem and they're going to kill you. Don't go. Chains and tribulation awaits you. And he just kept going. He just kept going. That's how the kingdom of God spread. Men willing to die to their image in order that they may live for the glory and image of another. In Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, Remember those early days after you had received the light when you endured a great conflict of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possession. 
Do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what he has promised. Fox's Book of Martyrs and many other historical accounts tell us the account of Polycarp, who was said to be a student of the apostle John. He was an overseer of the church in Smyrna. And when he heard that soldiers were looking for him, he tried to escape, but he was discovered by a child who alerted the authorities. When he was arrested, he fed the guards a meal and asked for an hour in prayer. They gave him his request. The historical account tells us that he prayed with such fervency. You can process what that must have meant. He prayed with such fervency that his guards said that they were sorry that they were the ones who had captured him. Nevertheless, he was taken before the governor and condemned to be burned in the marketplace. After his sentence was given, the governor asked him, saying, Reproach Christ, and I will release you. Polycarp answered, Eighty-six years I have served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? In the marketplace he was tied to the stake rather than nailed, as was the custom, because he assured his tormentors that he would stand immovable in the flames and not fight them. As the dry sticks placed around him were lit, the flames rose up and circled his body without touching him. The executioner was then ordered to pierce him with the sword to make up for what the flames failed to do. What are we seeing in Stephen? What are we seeing in Paul? What are we seeing in Polycarp? We're seeing people who have a priority that supersedes self-preservation. We're seeing people who have overcome the power by which the devil holds all people in bondage all their lifetime, the fear of death. In the year 404, an Asian monk named Telemachus traveled from the Far East to experience Rome and celebrate Christmas with Christians in that city. One afternoon, a jostling crowd lifted and carried the monk into the Colosseum. Hardened gladiators emerged, and standing before the emperor, the gladiators proclaimed, We who are about to die salute you, the emperor. Suddenly, a shrill cry erupted high above the blood-stained sands where the gladiators stood. The Asian monk Telemachus cried out, and his voice punctured through the crowd's roar. He shrieked, in the name of Christ, forbear. And the Colosseum tumult subsided. Again he shrieked, in the name of Christ, forbear. But the people began to jeer, and the games commenced. But then the throngs glimpsed a scrawny figure springing over the great stone wall, dropping to the arena sands, and moving with determined strides right toward the gladiators. The crowd heard his cry again and again, In the name of Christ, forbear! Amusement turned to disgust, and disgust turned to anger. Standing near the gladiators, Telemachus pleaded now, In the name of Christ, forbear! Upon an order from the emperor, one of them plunged his sword into Telemachus's body. And as he fell to the arena sands in death, his last words lofted like a bird above the hushed crowd. In the name of Christ, forbear. The gladiators stood looking at this tiny form lying lifeless in the sand. Silence fell over the Colosseum. And then someplace up in the upper tiers, an individual made his way to an exit and left. Others began to follow. In the deadly silence, every soul left the thronged Colosseum 
And history tells us that was the last gladiator fight in the history of Rome. Never again did a man kill a man for the crowd's sordid amusement. One voice above the tumult in the name of Christ forbear consigned that bloody barbarism to the grim pages of history. What the world needs now is people filled with a purpose and a power that can cast out the power of the evil one. And if he casts out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon us. Point your finger at our hearts, Lord. Point your finger at every place of bondage, every sin that would hold us captive, every weight that would so easily beset. Point your finger, Lord. Point the finger of your power, of your spirit, into our lives. I'm going to conclude with this. When Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he replied, he said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. In that revelation from Peter, a precedent had occurred. God had spoken and man had uttered the voice, the words of God from heaven. And he said, upon this rock, this precedent, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Here again, we see people speaking and acting under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is what the gates of hell cannot overpower. The church is not an aggregate of contradicting, independent, carnally-minded individuals. The church is a composition, an army, under the headship of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. Paul said in Ephesians that God demonstrates his manifold wisdom through the church to principalities and powers in heavenly places. Now listen to this. Every kingdom, every polity in the history of mankind has been an incarnation of some evil principality and power in heavenly places. But the church is Christ's kingdom and power and answer and wisdom in the face of all that brutality. It demonstrates his wisdom. He doesn't say he demonstrates it to individuals, but the church is God's final act, his final plan to show principalities and powers that people can be governed by more than fear. They can live for love. That people can come together in unity, in brotherhood, in the same picture that we receive in Acts of the breaking of bread and fellowship. And it won't be another brotherhood of man separated from the fatherhood of God. It will be our Father who art in heaven letting his kingdom come in our midst. That's the light that is supposed to go forth. That's the witness. It's not the witness of an individual. And it's not merely the witness of a disembodied message. It's the witness of a message that still becomes flesh today. God seeks to incorporate His Word and will and love and glory in the body. The blessed inheritance in the saints. What are the riches of His glory? The glory of His inheritance in the saints. That's His kingdom. Make me a part of it, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We praise your name, God.
Bitch. 